Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, "The Other Tiger" by Arthur C. Clarke. This is first published in a magazine called Fantastic Universe, June, July, 1953. It's the very first issue of Fantastic Universe. Um, the reason I, I came across this one is I was uh, looking for the first publication of Martians Come in Clouds by Philip K. Dick, and that's where that was. But this is a good issue. It's got a, a mix of um, all the good names of science fiction authors Frank Belknap Long uh, E. Hoffman Price, August Derleth uh, Philip K. Dick, Milton Lesser little lesser known author Ray Bradbury, uh, Eric Frank Russell um, and uh, oh, oh and the title uh, story, or the first story uh, Nightmare Tower uh, by Jacques Jean Ferrat um, was actually Sam Merwin Jr. under a pseudonym <laughs> um so uh, one of the things I read about this magazine, and I would completely agree with about Fantastic Universe, is that it was called the Poor Man's FNSF, or the Poor Man's uh, Magazine of Science Fiction and Fantasy, uh, or Fantasy and Science Fiction. Um, and it, uh, one of the reasons it's like that is it actually sort of formatted in the similar way. It has an, uh, generally not any illustrations. There's a editorial introduction using you know italics and um and then there's a, a story that's sort of a little more literary than pulpy a little more um uh i don't know philosophical or literature based rather than action and um i don't know planetary stories style um so, I'm a big fan of Fantastic Universe because I like FNSF. Okay. Um, what makes it a poor man's version? Uh, well, I think the poor man's part of it is they aspired to the the heights of FNSF. FNSF has, like, if you went... I have not checked this, but if you went through and um, looked at how many award-winning stories or stories that are famous in SF, there would be probably more in FNSF than almost any other magazine. There I are, can certainly tell you that when then when we were creating the database for the Jean Revolution project, mm -hmm. uh, we discovered that FNSF generated a higher fraction of stories that had a high number of reprints yeah. than any other magazine. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's some magazines that uh, there would have, like, no no reprints <laughs> out of any right. of the stories. And it's not just a rights issue. It's kind of like there were markets that paid better, and FNSF paid better than... than uh, uh, I can't. I can't actually guarantee that this is true, but it paid better than this. I'm betting, and it paid better than most. Um, and so you want to be an FNSF, if not j for the prestige as an author, but for the you know who you get to pal around with. It, look, there's my name beside Alfred Bester, right? <laughs> wow, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so uh, getting Arthur C. Clarke is is no uh, no nothing. Um, it's it's good and Ray too. Bradbury. Oh yeah, and August Starleth. I mean, 
Yeah. It's it's a it's a good it's a good magazine and I really appreciate the stuff that we've we've done shows of stories from it. Um Andre Norton's um uh, All Cats Are Grey, I believe, was an FNS uh in Fantastic Universe. So um notice it also has that sort of uh same thing in its title. Fantastic and Universe makes you think of the two poles of FNSF, right? Fant- the fantasy mm-hmm. and the universe, the 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 future, the stars, etc. Um, I do have a couple other notes about this story. Um, one is um, in a later publication, uh, Arthur C. Clarke actually noted that he didn't collect this when he was collecting his other stuff, and so it took another collection. Because he sort of passed it by in some sense, he says in an introduction. But he he noted that the title he gave it was not the one that Sam... Uh, was it Sam Merwin Jr.? I think it was. The uh, editor gave it, which uh, is... Yeah? Uh, the, yeah. Uh, he, his original title, when he wrote it in January 1951, was Refutation. Um, and uh. he, he thinks that... Uh, the title, The Other Tiger, uh, was probably inspired by uh, the Frank R. Stockton story that I think of as famous, but he says... Was, I do, too. Yeah, I do. I think we agree. that it's a, But that's because we've read it, right? <laughs> and it's a great story. And it used to be famous. Um, I think you better name it. It's called The Lady or the Tiger. <clears throat> and uh, I think that it's possible that Clark had that in his background in the background of his mind when writing the story um and i think the other tiger is a much better title than refutation i think it's a much better title too but i think (coughs) pardon me i think that there is another reference that it might refer Mm -hmm. that that might be implicit here but i think that it's one we should uh which doesn't mean that uh, the stockton story is not relevant but uh, so might the other in a, in a mm-hmm. way that'll become clearer after we talk about the story itself, which I think will be clearer after we uh, go over the story. Sounds good. It's, would you care to read it for us? I would be delighted. The Other Tiger by Arthur C. Clarke. It's an interesting theory, said Arnold, but I don't see how you can ever prove it. They had come to the steepest part of the hill, and for a moment, Webb was too breathless to reply. I'm not trying to, he said, when he had gained his second wind. I'm only exploring its consequences, such as, well, let's be perfectly logical and see where it gets us. Our only assumption, remember, is that the universe is infinite. Right. Personally, I don't see what else it could be. Very well. That means there must be an infinite number of stars and planets. Therefore, by the laws of chance, every possible event must occur not merely once, but an infinite number of times, correct? I suppose so. Then there must be an infinite number of worlds exactly like Earth, each with an Arnold and Webb on it, walking up this hill, just as we are doing now, saying these same words. That's pretty hard to swallow. I know, it's a staggering thought, but so is infinity. The thing that interests me, though, is the idea of all those other Earths that 
aren't exactly the same as this one. The Earths where Hitler won the war and the swastika flies over Buckingham Palace. The Earths where Columbus never discovered America. The Earths where the Roman Empire has lasted to this day. In fact, the Earths where all the great ifs of history had different answers. Going right back to the beginning, I suppose, to the one in which the ape man, who would have been the daddy of us all, broke his neck before he could have any children? That's the idea, but let's stick to the worlds we know. The worlds containing us climbing this hill on this spring afternoon. Think of all our reflections on those millions of other planets. Some of them are exactly the same, but every possible variation that doesn't violate the laws of logic must also exist. We could, we must be wearing every conceivable sort of clothes and no clothes at all. The sun's shining here, but on countless billions of other Earths, it's not. On many, it's winter or summer here instead of spring. But let's consider more fundamental changes too. We intend to walk up this hill and down the other side. Yet think of all the things that might possibly happen to us in the next few minutes. However improbable they may be, as long as they are possible, then somewhere they've got to happen. I see, said Arnold, slowly absorbing the idea with obvious reluctance. An expression of mild discomfort crossed his features. Then somewhere, I suppose, you will fall dead with heart failure when you've taken your next step. Not in this world, Webb laughed. I've already refused it. Perhaps you're going to be the unlucky one. Or perhaps, said Arnold, I'll get fed up with the whole conversation, pull out a gun, and shoot you. Quite possibly, admitted Webb, except that I'm pretty sure on this earth you haven't got one. Don't forget, though, in that millions of... Don't forget, though, that in millions of those alternative worlds, I'll beat you on the draw. The path was now winding up a wooded slope. The trees thick on either side. The air was fresh and sweet. It was very quiet, as though all nature's energies were concentrated with silent intentness on rebuilding the world after the ruin of winter. I wonder, continued Webb, how improbable a thing can get before it becomes impossible. We've mentioned some unlikely events, but they're not completely fantastic. Here we are in an English country lane, walking along a path we know perfectly well. Yet in some universe, those, what shall I call them, twins of ours will walk around that corner and meet anything, absolutely anything anything that imagination can conceive. For as I said at the beginning, if the cosmos is infinite, then all possibilities must arise. So it's possible, said Arnold, with a laugh that was not quite as light as he intended, that we may walk into a tiger or something equally unpleasant. Of course, replied Webb cheerfully, warming to his subject, if it's possible, then it's got to happen to someone somewhere in the universe. So why not to us? Arnold gave a snort of disgust. This is getting quite futile, he protested. Let's talk about something sensible. If we don't meet a tiger around this corner, I'll regard your theory as refuted and change the subject. Don't be silly, said Webb gleefully. That won't refute anything. There's no way you can't. 
they were the last words he ever spoke. On an infinite number of Earths, an infinite number of webs and Arnolds met tigers friendly, hostile, or indifferent. But this was not one of those Earths. It lay far closer to the point where improbability urged on the impossible. <laughs> Yet, of course, it was not totally inconceivable that during the night the rain-sodden hillside had caved inward to reveal an ominous cleft leading down into the subterranean world. As for what had laboriously climbed up that cleft, drawn towards the unknown light of day? Well, it was really no more unlikely than the giant squid, the boa constrictor, or the feral lizards of the Jurassic jungle. It had strained the laws of zoological probability, but not to the breaking point. Webb had spoken the truth. In an infinite cosmos, everything must happen somewhere, including their singularly bad luck. For it was hungry, very hungry. <laughs> and a tiger or a man would have been a small yet acceptable morsel in any one of the half dozen gaping mouths. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't tell you this. Yes, uh, what happened to me yesterday, Eric? Um, yesterday, I was uh, out in my mom's yard throwing the ball for my mom's puppy, and uh, she was off at the doctor's office, um, and I got a text message. Um, from the person who was with her saying, your mom wants you to see this. Uh, and uh, it was a text message saying that there was a cougar seen near uh, her house. Um, and I, I uh, had, by that point, um, gone in, inside with the, with the dog. And uh, when, I got, when she got back, I, I took the dog out again and I was throwing the ball. And I turned somehow, and I fell, and um, I don't. I it was just like suddenly I was I was on the ground, and I didn't even know what had happened. In some alternate universe, that me falling wasn't caused by the ground being uneven, but rather it was caused by a cougar knocking me <laughs> down, <laughs> and I wouldn't be here to tell you this story, Eric if that had happened and the probability of that happening is not infinite it's actually far less than that so um this story seems pretty light and silly um but at its core it's actually a serious problem caused by our perception of how big the universe is and how far it goes and uh what that means because if something is infinite and this is a problem Whenever you start talking anything about math, what math is and what, whether it represents reality, you're soon confronted with the problem of infinity. And it has huge but ridiculous consequences. So um, I appreciate this story on that level. <laughs> but I also appreciate that... Um, <laughs> I don't know if it was designed this way, but just so works out that um, when, <laughs> when we're on the bottom of the second page and you're reading, yet in some universe, those, what shall I call them, twins of ours, will walk around the corner and meet anything, absolutely any, and then we turn the page and we find out finally what happened at the end of the story, right? That mm -hmm. is our reality, too. 
we're walking down the street and suddenly we see something that happens and whatever happens it is you know somebody opens a door in front of you or uh somebody gets on a bus um (laughs) it was unpredictable to us but only in retrospect it was perfectly predictable if you look at it in retrospect it's unpredictable at the moment in time so is this story improbable yes (laughs) but not based on the argument that they're having because it is a serious problem in understanding what reality is so it's a great story (laughs) um yeah (laughs) you disagree i think well the thing is that the logic of the story is based entirely on the notion that there is one and only one infinity. That is, infinity is defined as increasing number without limit. Um, so an infinite set would have in it items numbered one, two, three, four, and it would just keep growing. Mm-hmm. The thing is, in set theory, the notion is that there can be a set, the elements of which are themselves infinite. Mm-hmm. That is to say, each element is itself an infinite set. Right. So there are orders of infinity. This doesn't take that, this story doesn't take that into account. It assumes that there is just infinity. But in fact, <clears throat> there are different orders of infinity, and there's no reason to suppose that just because something could exist, it would exist. It, The underlying mathematical logic here is not compelling, but the narrative logic of it is compelling. In in a way, what we're dealing with here is something like the resolution of Zeno's paradox. Mm. I mean, he has a number of them, but but the most famous of Zeno's paradoxes is the the one that says that uh, an arrow cannot get all the way to its target because... The first time it goes halfway, and then the next moment it goes halfway of the remaining distance, and so on. But the and it easiest would never resolution, get there. it would never get there. But the easiest way to there are a couple of ways to resolve it. But one of the ways, if you want to make it entirely logical, is just say, why do we not posit that the target is twice as far away, and then it'll get to this target, you know, and we're done, mm-hmm. um, right? So playing games with infinity raises logical problems, but there are logical resolutions of them as well. One of the reasons I like the story so much is that, like Arnold, I resist Webb's argument, Mm -hmm. and it makes me think about what infinity might really mean, and therefore, what is the relationship between an intellectual construct and the real world? Mm Mm-hmm. The second way to resolve Zeno's paradox is to say, as the as the walker tries to get halfway to his goal, and this, each step becomes smaller, in the real world, his feet can't take an infinitesimal step. <laughs> you have no choice, but right. I mean, feet won't do that, <laughs> and 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 that's part of what's going on here, I think. And so, and yet, the concept of infinity and infinitesimals is crucial to the development, going back to mathematics, of differential calculus and integral calculus. And so these are fictions that have real effect in the real world. Uh, 
Arthur C. Clarke had a double degree from university in mathematics and physics. Um, and he told me, uh, by the way, um, when we got to talk a couple, I got to talk with him a couple of times. Um, it, it's very important to him that it was with honors. <laughs> they were both with honors. Um, he understood the, the orders of infinity, and he understood them certainly by the 1950s when this is published, because he graduated university during the war, uh, or actually a little before the war. So I like the fact that this is a fundamentally philosophical tale. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I would also say, could I go back? I'd like to go back to your, your notion about the tiger. Mm-hmm. I see the, the, the Stockton story reference, but the Stockton story ends ambiguously. Right? Was it the lady or was it the tiger that exactly. came out from and, behind the door? And it leaves it to the reader. Exactly. And in fact, the story title has a question mark in it. Mm-hmm. It's not the lady or the tiger. It's the lady or the tiger. Uh, <laughs> this story referring to another tiger it could be another tiger than stockton's because this one is in fact definitely the thing mm-hmm. right we, there's nothing ambiguous about the ending here um <laughs> these guys get eaten not on this but, reality not in this reality um but but what do they get eaten by so um i'm thinking it's a lovecraftian well, style monster right multiple eyes but it does not strain zoological probability to the breaking point. There's another. I I happen to know of a six-mouthed monster. <laughs> um, if I, you know, you, you can check this while we're talking. You're okay. very nimble with your. Uh, um, in Scylla and Charybdis. Oh yeah. The monster that bends down and picks the sailors up who go between. Um, that is that Scylla, I guess. I think that's still a not Charybdis. I always get the names. Mm-hmm. That's a six-headed, six-mouthed monster. Right. So there is a a real antecedent for this particular monster. A three-headed monster could have been Cerberus. Mm-hmm. Right. This is a six-headed monster, and that's the only six-headed, exactly six-headed monster that I know. So this is a reference, I think, back to Greek myth. But there's something else going on here. What's that? This this story begins with Arnold and Webb walking uphill. Mm-hmm. Their intention is to crest the hill and go down. Mm-hmm. As soon as they crest the hill, all hell breaks loose. Yep. Arthur Clarke wrote that when he was 12... In the library in Minehead, England, he encountered the works of Olaf Stapledon. Mm-hmm. And he recalls how he copied out the time scales from the ends of the book, right, Last and First Men and Star Maker, and that these changed his life. Now, Star Maker begins with the narrator walking up a hillside. Mm. We don't have enough time to go into a discussion of Starmaker here, but Starmaker is a story basically giving us a sense of the entirety of the universe and all possible universes told from the viewpoint, from a single viewpoint. 
And if you go through Stormaker, which reads ultimately much more like a poem than it does like a novel, there's mm-hmm. no dialogue, for instance. Um, if you read Stormaker as a poem, what you begin to recognize, and in the course of the time we have today, I hope you can just accept it as a hypothesis rather than <laughs> asking for proof. Mm-hmm. It turns out that Stormaker is an analogy of Dante's Inferno. Excuse me, of Dante's Divine Comedy, not just the Inferno, of Dante's Divine Comedy. And as you will remember, the Divine Comedy begins with the Inferno, and the character who names himself Dante is going up a hillside. And as he goes up the hillside, his ability to walk is hindered because shadowing him is, in fact, a panther, not a... Mm. Not a not a tiger, a leopard, I should say, not a uh, a tiger. But there is this this ferocious feline that's getting in his way and making it hard for him to climb the hill. Mm-hmm. The climbing of which is necessary for him ultimately to go through the experiences that will give him an insight into the totality of the spiritual universe. So we have at the beginning of this story the the tiger, and I think. It's it's the tiger we see in Dante, the tiger that impressed, or the leopard in Dante, that impressed Arthur C. Clarke, and that impressed William Blake. Mm. Did he who make the lamb make thee? The other tiger is the one that isn't God. The other tiger is the one that really does eat us. Mm. I think this story, and Clark is full of these uh, references, you know, uh, religious ones all the time, as in the the three billion names of God or the star. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this tiger, I think it's a brilliant, I think Clark was right, it's a brilliant retitling of the story. Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't do a refutation, in fact, of the logic. There's much more in it than the logic. And he knew it because he was trained in mathematics. I think ultimately this very simple, very provocative story, which would be great to play with when you're 12, mm-hmm. you know, play with intellectually, really rewards a much more informed and sober rereading when you are at least of my advanced years. <laughs> I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I, I I think about all the tigers in science fiction. And by the way, we have done a show on Star Maker with Eric S. Rabkin back in SFF <laughs> Audio Podcast number 345, if you want to go check that out and hear the full story on it. Um, I just think of, you know, uh, Alfred Bester's Tiger. Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright is where he gets his title for the British U- UK edition, right? It's in the It's in the book of The mm-hmm. Star's My Destination. And in that case, it's a man who uh, looks like a tiger because of his facial tattoos, but also acts like a tiger in his ferocity. Um, and uh, it's, it is a thing that runs through science fiction, this idea of th- that which confronts and that which destroys. And what I love here is that in, I assume these two guys are colleagues they seem to be, sure. you know, I assume them to be walking away from a university during their lunch break. Right? <laughs> we know that it's spring. It's an afternoon. They talk about this path being so familiar. Um, they talk about all the great ifs of history, right? 
And then we get a beautiful little sentence or paragraph right in the middle of um, the story. It says, The path was now winding up a wooded slope, the trees thick on either side, the air was fresh and sweet. And then this is the line that got me. It was very quiet, as though all nature's energies were concentrated with silent intentness on rebuilding the world after the ruin of winter. That's very, you know, Stapledonian. <laughs> it the- is, and you can, and you can see that why, how it fits in beautifully with the beginning of Dante's Inferno. It, it's it's really nice, and and yet um, underlying this friendship of these two colleagues, you know, one slightly annoyed with the other because of the, you know, this is ridiculous. The stories you're spinning up here, yes, they're all very nice, but uh, unless I see a tiger on the other side of this hill. I'm going to consider it refuted. Um, but they've got an undercurrent of this is actually how you get good ideas is you present something to someone and then they attack it. And and they've got this sort of undercurrent of this in their own dialogue. He says, now in this world, Webb laughed, I've already re- refused it. And um, uh, I noted there was an audiobook narration where he actually said, refuted it so they are probably going from a later publication um where it was a typo that it says refused it i've already refuted it perhaps you're going to be the unlucky one and then arnold says or perhaps i'll get fed up with the whole conversation pull out a gun and shoot you (laughs) so (laughs) there is this undercurrent of um like yes they're two friends discussing something very amiably in the in the English countryside on a spring morning, everything's safe and fine. There's no dangers in this forest. And yet that forest at the top of the hill blocks view. Perfect camouflage for whatever's hiding in the woods. It's a metaphor. It's beautiful. It is. I I, I would like to build on that for just a moment, Jesse. Clark does something here as a stylist that in my recollection, um, works very importantly uh, with a number of other really great stories. Um, It works with Kafka's The Metamorphosis. It works with H.G. Wells's The Star. You pointed out, we get to that line, that won't refute anything. There's no way you can, and then it just changes. I would like to, to... just make explicit when that changes, we are suddenly shocked into having a change of narrative stance. Mm-hmm. As up to that moment, somebody says this, and Arnold says that, and Webb says the other thing. The narrator is, without us having thought too much about it, like somebody who's watching what's going on. It's as if there was somebody behind Arnold and Webb walking right, up the right. hill with them, right? And he's just reporting what he sees and what he knows. And right, It's just another ordinary human being. But when we get that change, there's no way you can. They were the last words he ever spoke. <laughs> That's not just some other human being walking behind them on the hillside. Suddenly, we have an omniscient viewpoint. Mm-hmm. That's what happens at the end of the star. When after the earth is, you know, and then it suddenly switches, the narration switches and it says, and the Martian astronomers 
for there are astronomers on Mars, and then it talks about the destruction of the Earth. Or at the end of Kafka, after the whole thing has opened up in Gregor Samsa's mind, but then after he dies, suddenly his, his sister is on the hillside having a picnic with his parents. <laughs> it's just, Who has been telling the story all mm-hmm. along? And the fact that this story we suddenly realize at the end is from a, a supernatural, a divine, a, a, a godlike viewpoint <laughs> means that everything that we've been thinking about, we humans who are trying to solve the issue, we're not the ones who are going to solve the issue at all. We live in a world that really does have something else going on in it, and we need to figure it out. This story impels us to, which is why you and I can read a short, gorgeous story like this and find there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.